Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Um, well, I am excited to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. I'll be honest, I'm most excited right now that I wasn't handed one of those mouthpieces and have to preach in one of those things because that did not look fun. But um, please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah. We're going to be Isaiah chapter 6. As I have the privilege of kicking off your youth camp under this theme of heaven and glory. Tonight I won't be addressing heaven, that will be happening in the sessions to come, but it's my privilege to talk to you from Isaiah chapter 6 about what it means to talk about and think about God's glorious presence. That word glory, it can be a hard word sometimes to wrap our minds around. Most literally it means the weight of something. The worth of something. It's, it's, it's their value, their greatness, if you will. And I think we're all hardwired to want to experience greatness. When we go out to eat, we don't usually ask the server, what's the most mediocre thing that you sell here? No, we want to know what is great. What is their best food? When we go to watch a new movie or, or to watch a new show, we, we don't look for something that's so-so. No, we want to know what's great, what's going to be an enjoyable thing, the best thing to watch. When we root for our sports team, and I hope you all root for Philadelphia sports teams. If we have any Dallas Cowboy fans here, can I take points away just to start for that? Um, when you root for your sports team, we don't hope they perform just okay. No, we want them to be great. We are hardwired to desire Greatness, and that's not by accident. God has made us this way, ultimately because God wants us to de desire him. See, God is the greatest being that there is. Everything else in existence is less than him. And so our desire for greatness has been put in us by God to direct our hearts ultimately to God. You were made by God to enjoy his greatness and to live for the purpose of showing off his greatness until you get to be with God forever in heaven, we'll be, we'll be enjoying God's greatness forever. We were made by God to live for his glory. And living for anything else will make us feel unsatisfied. Living for anything else other than the glory of God is like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It'll only leave you wanting more. And so, so here's my prayer before I read God's word, here, here's my prayer for you as you come into this youth camp. My prayer is that as you consider God's glory, as you consider his greatness from a variety of different angles over this week, my, my prayer is that you'd be captured by a desire to live for what truly matters. So many people waste their lives living for things that won't matter at all. But this is the relationship between heaven and glory. When you live for God's glory, that is something that you'll enjoy for all eternity in heaven when we are with him in the true land that we are made to be in forever. A guy named D.L. Moody said, we should not fear failure. We should feel succeeding at things that don't make a difference. My prayer for you is that you would be captured by living for something that would make a tremendous difference. Living to make a difference for the glory of God. I was recently in a country in Central Asia where it's illegal to be a Christian. And I had the privilege of meeting a pastor there who had opened a business, but when it was found out that he was a Christian, his business was seized and he was beaten and put in jail and he lost everything. 
And our world would say that he was wasting his life behind those prison bars. But I would say this is a man who's living for the glory of God. And so what he said, as I had the privilege of meeting with him and talking with him, is he was saying he's living a rich and satisfying and fulfilling life. That's not a wasted life. Here's a wasted life. A wasted life is the person who graduates from high school or college, gets a job, lives in a comfortable house, gets married, has some kids and a dog, and never does anything for God's glory but just lives for themselves. In other words, a wasted life is what most people in America are doing every single day of their lives. And so my prayer for you is that this youth camp, you would be woken up to what truly matters. That you would rise up as a generation that's not content to live for the status quo. That's not just going to shape your life to chase your comfort. But that you would live with the holy fire in your belly to use your life. To use your one life that God has given you. To use it for the purpose for which God gave it to you. And that is to live to show off his greatness. To live to display his glory to a world that so desperately needs to know him. So with that in view, let's read together Isaiah chapter 6 and just begin to get a taste of the glory of God's presence. I'm going to read this and then we will pray. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, I pray that you would be with us through your Holy Spirit as we turn our attention and open our hearts to what you have to say to us through your Holy Word. What I pray is Moses prayed on Mount Sinai, God, tonight would you give us a glimpse of your glory? Would you show us just a little bit more of who you are? Would you just peel back just a little bit the curtain of heaven that we might see you. And in seeing you, we might be changed by what we see. So that you would get more glory from our lives. I pray this, Lord God, because we need your help. This is not something that my words can accomplish. This is not something that any of us can 
understand apart from you. We need you. So God, would you please come and meet with us. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've got two points for you as we make our way tonight through this selection of scripture. I want to look at God's glorious presence described. And so what is the glory of God's presence? And then two, I want to look at God's glorious presence experienced. How is seeing God's glory meant to affect us right here and right now? So God's glorious presence described, God's glorious presence experienced. Point number one, God's glorious presence described. Isaiah's vision, he says, came to him in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was the king of Israel who reigned in Israel for over 52 years. He was one of their longest reigning kings. And he was one of the most successful kings. He had fought many battles. He had faithfully protected their borders. He'd actually expanded their borders, taken more land. He had brought in a time of prosperity to the people of Israel that they had not seen since the days of King David and King Solomon. This is one of their great kings. And yet as great as King Uzziah was, he still died. And so right here at the start, this is setting up for us a contrast between this great king and the one who is truly the greatest king. In the year that King Uzziah died, it's not by chance that Isaiah says, it was at that time that I saw the one who was really sitting on the throne. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. That word Lord is a translation of the title Adonai, which means sovereign ruler. What Isaiah is setting up for us here is that there's only one truly sovereign ruler. Only one whose reign will never die out. Only one whose glory will never fade. You see, everything in this world, no matter how great it might seem, everything in this world has an expiration date on it. It has a greatness that will pass. It's here one day, gone another, just like King Uzziah, everything in this world will die. I went to Rome a few years ago, and Rome has historically been called the eternal city. About 2,000 years ago, it was known as the center of the world, the most powerful city ever to exist. And it's a great place to go and visit. It's a great place to go and visit and learn about some ancient history. That's all the eternal city is right now. It lies in ruins. And so you can pay some money to see some ruins and learn some ancient history. It is no longer a place of much influence. It is no longer the center of the world by any stretch of the imagination. The glory of that city has faded. But God's glory never fades. God never dies out. He is the one who is truly eternal. Isaiah says he saw the true Lord who is Seated high and lifted up. In ancient times, the higher the throne, the more prestigious was the person in power. And so what Isaiah is setting up for us here is that there is no throne higher than God's throne because there is no one who is greater than God. What what is God's throne? Isaiah will go on to say this in Isaiah chapter 66, 1, speaking in the voice of God. What's God's throne? God says, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. When was the last time you thought about how big the earth was? 
I brought a slide with me so you could just take a look at this together. We put the side of the earth. Think about how big the earth is. We got all the mountains, the oceans, the atmosphere, all that goes into that. God says that is his footstool. That's where God puts his feet up. And he says the heavens are his throne. Not the heavens in that the place we go after we die. What's being referred to in Isaiah 66 is the heavens in the terms of the universe. The stars, the planets. And so if you think the earth is big, friends, the heavens are incomprehensibly massive. At the center of our galaxy is the sun. And so if you think the earth is big, the earth is about 12,742 kilometers. I only know that because I looked it up. Praise God for Google. Um, that, that's, that's really big. You know how big the sun is? It's 1.3 million kilometers in diameter. You could fit 960,000 Earths inside our sun. I brought a picture of the sun uh, so we could look at that compared to the Earth. So if we get that slide up. So you see that the Earth is all the way down there. Like you can barely probably even see it from your seat. And there's the sun. If the Earth was a golf ball and the sun a school bus... You could fill up an entire school bus worth of golf balls from top to bottom with the amount of earth that you could fit inside the sun. Our sun is massive. But the sun is nothing compared to the biggest star in the universe, or at least the biggest star that we know of at this point. The biggest star in our universe is called Canis Majoris, which I think is just a really cool name. It means big dog. Um, (laughs) The sun is 1.3 million kilometers in uh, diameter. Canis Majoris is 1.75 billion kilometers in diameter. Here's a picture of Canis Majoris. Could we put that up? And actually, it's compared to the sun. Now, if you can't see the sun uh, except the word, uh, that's because you can't actually see it compared to Canis Majoris. If you you were to go up there and you were to take a Sharpie, a white Sharpie because that's a black background, but if you were to take a white Sharpie and put it on there, the tip of that pen would be too big. It would be out of proportion the sun is that much smaller than Canis Majoris. We, got, we actually got a slide to, to blow this up. Can we put up the next slide that compares it? So that, that's the sun. Do you see it just barely hits that? That's the sun. The, the, the smallest speck compared to this massive planet. And so if the sun, we thought the sun was big, then how big do you describe that? Like, like we start to run out of the, the limits of our vocabulary here and we start to talk about things of this magnitude. It's just beyond comprehension. Now think about this, Canis Majoris is but one star in a universe full of trillions of stars. Here's the most comprehensive view that we have of the universe at the point, if we get that slide up. You see I highlighted right there what Canis Majoris is compared to the rest of the universe. How massive are the heavens? And God says, the heavens are my throne. God is so glorious that his throne can't be contained by any court. God is so glorious that his reign cannot be marked by any calendar. He's so royal that he cannot be rivaled by any ruler. He is the Lord, high and exalted. There's no one above him. Isaiah says that this one who was high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the whole temple. The train of a robe was the long part that 
hung down behind a king. And similar to how the higher a king sat, the more prestigious he was. Also, the longer their robe, the more prestigious they were, the more important they were, the more power they had. Isaiah says that God's robe filled up the whole temple. There was not one square inch that was left that was not touched by his greatness. Later on, we see that it says the whole earth is full of his glory. There's not one square inch of existence that does not show off the glory of the God who brought all things into existence. Above this high and exalted God through his throne flew these seraphim. The seraphim are described in the book of Revelation as these powerful angels who look like a mix between a lion and an eagle. Both those animals were the, the animals of power, the animals of royalty. They, they were regal, majestic animals, and they were combined together to make these beings. And they had incredible power. And so in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, one of these angels kills 185,000 men. 185,000 warriors come up to battle, one angel, poof, takes them all out. These are majestic beings, powerful beings. And yet as great as these beings are, they are not great enough to be allowed to look upon God in his glory. They have to fly with two wings and they're used two other wings to hide their eyes. Because as great as these beings are, they're not worthy to look at God. And they have to cover their feet Feet are a sign of their creatureliness. And so they had to cover themselves before God. And they're there not singing of their exploits, not showing off how great they are. No, they're there singing one song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now when we hear that word holy, I think we typically can think of words like maybe purity or God's perfection and those are certainly part of holiness but it's not the whole substance of that word the word holy most literally means to cut or to separate and so to say that God is holy is to say that he is separate from us it's to say that he is a cut above us if you will and there's a certain awe we feel when we see someone who is just a cut above what we are at something they're so much better at something that we are. And so, you know, this happens regularly for me. Is my experience of being the Phillies chaplain, um, I'm regularly made aware that they are a lot better at baseball than I am. And so I'll be sitting in the dugout after one of our Bible studies, you know, sometimes watching them take batting practice. And not only do they rarely miss hitting a ball, but almost every single one is like out of the park, out of the park a home run, you know. Uh, let me just tell you if, you, if you were to get up there and try to take batting practice, uh, those pitchers, pitchers are throwing it in there actually really fast. They're closer to the mound. And so uh, I've tried it sometimes, um, and uh, this doesn't leave here. So what happens in Lancaster stays in Lancaster. I've never actually hit a ball. Um, and so I just swing and miss, swing and miss. I stop because I just make a fool of myself. It's ridiculous, right? They are so far above. Early on in my first year of doing it, one of the players said, hey, um, you know, they're supposed to go out and have catch. Uh, I saw it on a schedule. It's like, hey, you know, pitchers are going to go play catch together. I did not yet know what that meant. I'm thinking like, oh, catch. I know how to play catch. I used to play catch with my friends. And so one of the pitchers said, hey, my, my teammate is late coming out, and he start warming up. I need to get, you know, my, my day going. So can you come play catch with me for a second? I'm like, okay, I can do that. 
you know, I've never played little, you know, more in Little League, but like how hard it can be to have a catch. And I start walking towards the field, and as I do, the teammate he was waiting for said, hey, man, don't worry about it, came up behind me and, uh, and got the glove and went out on the field to like play catch. And it's a good thing that happened because I realized that how professional pitchers play catch is a little different than what I did with my brother and dad in the backyard. When they play catch, they are not just having a nice catch. No, they are warming up their arm. And so eventually they're throwing the ball at 95 to 100 miles per hour at one another. That, that guy taking the glove and not letting me get on the field literally saved my life. Um, and so I'm just regularly aware that these guys are a cut above me when it comes to playing ba- baseball. Friends, that is nothing compared to how big a cut above God is of us. God is not just a cut above us. He's not just a little separate from us. It says he is holy, holy, holy. He is above, above, above. (laughs) In the ancient Hebrew language, they didn't have a way to emphasize things. Like they couldn't use all caps. Uh, They couldn't use exclamation points. They didn't have modifier words like very or really or a lot. What they would do to show that they really, really meant something is they would repeat it over and over again. And so we see this happen in other parts of the Bible. And so when Jesus, for example, really wants to make a point, he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. And so what is he saying? He's saying, this is really, really true. This is true, bold, capital, exclamation point, right? And so the Bible sometimes will refer to two words twice. But there's nothing else in the Bible that gets repeated more than twice except this word, holy. God is never called wise, wise, wise. He's never called just, just, just. He's never even called love, love, love. The only attribute of God that gets repeated three times is that God is holy, holy, holy. The point that this is being made is that there is no one who is more beyond us. There is no one who is more separate from us. God is exalted beyond anything that we could ever comprehend or anything that even our language could possibly hope to convey. His holiness is so great that the whole earth is filled with his glory. That word glory, again, as we said earlier, means, means, means greatness. And so the greatness of God is really the manifestation of his holiness. God's holiness is the incomparable perfection of his divine nature. His, his holiness is, is, is really his, his glory showing off his holiness. The, the way the holiness and glory works together is holiness is who God is. God's glory is making his holiness known. And so God's glory is his holiness gone public on display. God's holiness is him showing off his greatness. And so the glory of God is that he is the holy, holy Holy God. And encountering the glory of his presence, the glory of this holy, holy God, this one upon upon whom he sits over the heavens, this one upon whom the greatness fills the whole earth, this one upon whom no eye can look upon him, not even the majestic angels, this great and glorious God. When Isaiah has an encounter with him, when he sees this glorious God, not just described to his ears, but in front of his eyes. Well, experiencing glory like that is going to change you a little bit. 
And so as we have seen God's glorious presence described, let's look at how God's glorious presence is to be experienced. Point number two, God's glorious presence experienced. As Isaiah sees the glory of God, there are three things that happen to Isaiah. God's glory convicts him. God's glory cleanses him. And then God's glory commissions him. And the same things that happen to Isaiah are the same things that should happen to us as we experience the glory of God's presence. We should be convicted, we should be cleansed, and we should accept God's commission. And so let's look at each of these things. First, seeing God's glory convicts. Isaiah sees God's glory, and his first response to that is to say, Woe is me. That word woe is a word that Isaiah would have used many times as a prophet. It was a word that speaks of God's judgment. The prophets were often sent by God to pronounce God's judgment on others. And to pronounce woe on someone or on a city or on a situation is to say this, this, this is now under the judgment of God. To pronounce woe is to mark someone or something for death. And so Isaiah says, woe is me. What he is saying is that I deserve to die. He says, for I am lost. That word lost literally means I am undone. I've, I've come apart at the seams. He is completely broken before this holy God. Why? Why, 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 is, he, why is he feeling this way? He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what's interesting about this, the fact that Isaiah would call himself unclean, which would mean he was sinful. It's another way of thinking about this. What's interesting about this is Isaiah was at this time known as the most righteous person in all of Israel. He was a prophet. He literally had the privilege of speaking the very words of God. He, he was a servant of the Lord. What was his lips used for? His lips were used to spread God's messages. And yet as he sees the glory of God, he realizes that his best deeds are nothing but filthy rags compared to God's glory. In college, a friend of mine once invited me over to her house for a birthday party. And she said it was going to be a cocktail party. Now, I didn't know what a cocktail party was. She had just turned 21, so I assumed somehow drinking was involved. I don't drink, but I figured, hey, I can still go and support my friend, and, and you know, we'll have some fun with our friends together. It'll be great. And it was summer, and I knew she had a pool. I'd never been to her house before, but I, she had talked about having a pool. I knew she had a pool, so I assumed this is some kind of pool party. And so I showed up, and I felt pretty confident in how I was dressed. I had my swim trunks on, my sandals, and my tank top, you know? Sun's out, gun's out, let's go. And um, I began to realize that I might have missed something. When I pulled up to her house, and it was one of the biggest houses I've ever seen, um, and they had a super long driveway that, like, no joke, probably went from the back of this stage to, like, the back of that room, right? Super long driveway. And, and that, it wasn't necessarily the length of the driveway, but in this long driveway were several limousines lined up. I'm like, huh never been to a pool party before with limousines driving up to it. 
Um, but hey, no worries. I still felt confident in myself. And so I, I walk up to the door and confidently knock on it, again, feeling pretty secure in how I was dressed, until her mom opened the door, greeted me, and her mom was dressed in a full-length gown. And I looked behind her and I saw a room full of people all in tuxedos. And there were waiters walking around, butlers, uh, with white gloves on, serving cocktails. And it was in that moment that I realized there's something different about cocktail parties than I had thought before. And so word to the wise, here's what a cocktail party is. It is a black tie event. If you're going to a cocktail party, you've just been invited to something that's very, very formal. You're going to have to go out and buy some more clothes for that kind of party. I felt fine in my clothes before, but once I saw how everyone else was dressed, once I saw how nice they looked, all of a sudden, I don't embarrass easy, but I want to tell you, my, Fred, my, my face got about as red as a, as a you know, tomato. Uh, it, was, it was not a good situation. Seeing their beauty made me aware of how unworthy I was dressed. And that is what's happened to Isaiah here. He felt fine before. He felt fine speaking the messages that God gave him. He, he felt fine as a righteous person. But when he saw the glory of God, the resplendent radiance of God's glory made him very aware that he was not dressed appropriately. God's glory, God's greatness exposed Isaiah's lack of greatness and revealed to Isaiah his true sinfulness. And so he just felt broken before this great and glorious God. So I just want to ask you, have you ever felt broken before God before? Have have you ever felt undone? I think it can be so easy for us to have a little view of God and a big view of ourselves. Oh, we know the right things about God. We can answer the Bible trivia questions. But we've never been in his presence and just undone by the fact that he is who he is and we are not him. I think it can be so easy for us to excuse our sin. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that other person who we know who we think is worse than us. We, we, we feel better by our, about ourselves because we judge ourselves against others. But here's the reality, friends. If we're looking to God, every mouth is stopped. And everyone should be undone. Pride cannot exist in the presence of the glorious God. We might measure well against others, but we all fall short of his perfection, of his purity, of his holiness. And if we are excusing our sin, if we're thinking that what we have done is not that big a deal, maybe it's not in the world's eyes, maybe it's not in your friend's eyes, but you are not looking with eyes that see God for who he is. Because before him, there's no such thing as a little sin. Before him, we should all be undone. And truly encountering the glory of God's presence should convict us. It should cut us to the heart. Not so that we just stay feeling bad about ourselves. 
No, it should cut us to the heart as we are aware of our sinfulness. And that should magnify to us the incredible mercy of God's grace. See, God's glory should convict us. And then praise God, he has chosen for reasons known only to him. To not only convict us by his glory, but then to gloriously show how he can cleanse even unworthy people. God's glory should convict us, but then God's glory also cleanses us. Friends, the sweetness of grace is never tasted until we know our need for grace. And that's what happened to Isaiah here. He sees his need for grace. He knows that he is an unclean man. And then how does God immediately respond to him? He instructs one of the seraphim to go. And to touch him. To take a burning coal from the altar. The altar was the place where sacrifices would be brought in by the priests once per year to be burned for the forgiveness of people's sins. But this time it's not Isaiah the priest or prophet going to the altar to ask for God's forgiveness. No, no, no. He's undone. He doesn't even feel worthy to draw near to God. But what is God doing? God is drawing near to him. This is not the priest bringing something to the altar. This is the altar coming down. The seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it. Notice, he gets touched in the very place that he had said he was the most unclean. He said he had unclean lips. And that's where God told the seraphim to go and bring the coal that would cleanse him in that place where he felt the most shame. Friends, it's in the place where we can feel the most dirty that God wants to meet us in the most profound ways. The coal from the fire touches him and God pronounces over him two things. One, he says, your guilt is taken away. It's removed. It's gone. And two, he says, his sin is atoned for. To atone means to pay for something. If God had just taken away his guilt, it would still need to be paid for. If God had only paid for it, well, it would still need to be taken away. And so what happens is that both happen. And Isaiah is now cleansed because his guilt has been taken away and his guilt has been paid for. And both have happened by the mercy of God. And so Isaiah is no longer someone who is under God's judgment. He is no longer someone who is pronouncing woe upon himself, but now he knows he's been forgiven. He knows his, he, his sin has been wiped clean. He knows that he's been restored to God. God's glory did not just convict him. God's glory cleansed him. And friends, this act of cleansing is a foreshadowing, is a preview, is an appetizer, if you will, of a far greater act of mercy, a far greater act of cleansing that would come through Jesus Christ. Like the angel who brought God's cleansing from the altar to Isaiah, so Christ came from heaven to us. One of the major differences, you need to know this, about Christianity and every other major world religion a lot of them say very similar things about the type of people we should be. They have actually similar things to say about the type of moral lives we should live. Here's what separates Christianity from everything else. 
It's not primarily a story about what you have to do. Yes, there are things God wants us to do. Yes, there are ways God wants us to live. Absolutely. But Christianity is not primarily a story about you and what you have to do to make yourself right with God. No, no, no. It is primarily a story about Jesus and how he has come from heaven to earth to make us right with God. In other words, it's not primarily a religion of good advice. It's religion of good news. Not good advice about what we should do, but good news about what Jesus has done. God the Father sent Jesus the Son. And Jesus came. And he took our sin. Our guilt has been taken away. Why? Because Christ bore it away. As he took it to the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, For our sake God made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. Friends, we need to understand that what was happening on the cross was not a good man dying. No, what was happening on the cross was that the innocent and pure God-man had become sin. God says in Proverbs that it is unjust to punish an innocent person for a guilty one's guilt. And so what happened is when Jesus, the innocent person, went on the cross, he did not stay innocent. No, he took on our guilt. Jesus died on the cross because on the cross he became our sin. Our sin was put on Christ and he became the worst parts of who we are. And so this is why on the cross as Jesus looks up to his father in the midst of his pain, hoping from some comfort from the one with whom his soul had dwelled with love for all eternity. He's looking to heaven for some comfort from his father. He's met not with any comforting gaze, but instead the condemning eyes of the just judge, who the prophet Habakkuk says has eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. And so this is why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is what had happened to him. He had become our sin. And so the Father could no longer be with him. Jesus had become our lusts and our selfishness and our lies and our hard-heartedness. And the voice of the Father became the voice of the one of holy wrath saying to Jesus as he poured out his judgment upon him, you are self-righteous. Again, he's saying this to the one who's supposed to be innocent, but that's not who Jesus is anymore. He is now the one who is self-righteous and self-sufficient. He, he's the one who's being accused by God of being consumed with himself. God says to him, you are robbed me of my glory and you try to worship yourself. You are a liar and conceited and ungrateful. You are lazy and a slanderer and a gossip. You watch pornography and fill your mind with vulgarity. You get angry and express yourself with hate. You're lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. Your heart is filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness and you blame others for your sin and are often too proud to even call it sin 
You're someone who mocks your parents. You're someone who has no self-control. You do not trust me. You love so many things more than me. And the list of our sins goes on and on. And God continues to put those sins on Christ again and again, saying to Jesus, woe be upon you. And Jesus takes it all. He bears our guilt so that it could be taken away. He gives his blood to atone for our sin so that we could be cleansed. Listen, I'm not sure what you've done. Or I'm not sure what you might even be currently struggling with. Maybe there's hidden stuff that you've never talked about because you've been too ashamed. Friends, you need to know that Jesus knows already your deepest shame. Because he bore it in his body. He he knows what you're struggling with because he took that for you. And he did that because he loves you. He's not surprised by your sin. No, he came to die for your sin. And so what you have done does not turn God's heart from you. What you have done or are doing is why Jesus came for you. He loves you. When the crowds gathered at his feet and mocked him to come down and save himself, let's be clear, he could have. He would have called down the armies of heaven. Angels could have wiped the whole world out. And he actually didn't even need to do that. His is the voice that holds all things together. He could have stopped choosing to hold the atoms that were placing him on the cross through the nails. He could have chosen to say enough and the whole existence would have ceased to exist. He could have stopped it in a moment. And yet he didn't. Because in love, the book of Ephesians says, God had chosen us in him to adopt us as his children through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're thinking of this, God is outside of time. He sees it all at once. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, or if tonight you would place your faith in Christ, or at some point this week, God knows you already. And so when he was on the cross, he didn't get down. He didn't say, stop. He didn't say, I'm not going to take that. No, he said, I see Jeff Betcher. I know what he's going to do. And I love him. And so I'm going to stay here. Because someone's going to have to pay for that sin. And I don't want it to be him. Friends, God's glory should convict us of our sinfulness. But it should not just leave us there. No, it should take us to the Savior. The one who has gloriously made a way for us to be cleansed from our sin. And so be convicted 
in light of God's holiness, stop playing games and minimizing and excusing the wrong things you've done. But don't just stay wallowing in woe is me. No, let your brokenness take you to Christ who came for broken people. And he knows how to put them back together again through his love. Come to Christ in your uncleanness and know that he's the one who can make you clean through him. The glory of God's presence should convict us. Praise God, he also cleanses us. And third, this is really quick, but it's important. God's glory then commissions us. I love what happens here in verse 8. After having this experience of being cleansed, God says, whom shall I send? Meaning, who who am I going to send to take my message of love to the world. And, and, and after having experienced a, a vision of God's holiness, and after having experienced the love of God's cleansing, when God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah just leaps out of his skin saying, I must go. Here am I. You must send me. Friends, listen, God never works in us just for us. God works in us so that he can then work through us to reach others. And you don't have to wait to get older to start being used by God. If you know the glory of God's presence, you've been convicted of your sin, and yet you also know the glory of God's cleansing power, you believed in Jesus for the salvation of your sin. If you know that, then friends, you have a story of God's glory that he wants to use to influence other people that they might come to know his great love as well. That's not something you have to wait until you're a counselor to do. That's something you can do right now, no matter what age you are. When I was a junior in high school, I, uh, I started going down a kind of bad path while I was living this double life. And um, it really blew up in my face in a really bad way. And how I reacted to that was I, I really was flirting with walking away from the faith and just giving myself fully over to a lifestyle of sin. Junior in high school. 16, 17 years old. My friends, Josh and Andrew, just kept encouraging me. They didn't push me away. They didn't judge me for my struggles. They were honest with me about the concerns about my sin. They didn't say that's okay. No, they actually ratted me out a couple times to my parents, and I wasn't happy about that. Um, But they regularly encouraged me that in Jesus I could be forgiven of my sin. They were good friends. Who are serious, a good friend. Someone's talking about someone before the sermon. They reminded me of this quote. I think my dad might have said it, so I'm just going to steal it and make it mine. A good friend is someone who does not help you hide your sin and someone who reminds you that Jesus forgives your sin. In other words, a good friend is someone who knows how to take you to Christ for his cleansing power. And that's what Josh and Andrew did in my life again and again, and again, and it is God's grace that kept me, but God's grace often comes in the form of people. And I can honestly say I really don't think I'd be a Christian today if I did not have two, one a sophomore, one a junior, high school friends reaching out to me with the love of Christ. And so I say it to say this, there are, I'm sure, people in your life that God wants to reach. And he could reach through opening the heavens and speaking to them. But maybe he, spent you to, he sent you to speak to them. 
Friends, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, don't keep that to yourself. Share that with others. Reach out to your struggling friend. Make friends with someone who right now is far from Christ. That you can share with them the good news of Christ. Don't wait until you get older. God has great purposes for you now. He wants to use you now. I'm going I'm to close with this. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a Texas A&M football game. Um, but if you do, you'll notice that the student section stands the entire time. That's not because they are young people just full of energy and excited to root for their team. No, it's actually a school tradition that dates back to January 2nd, 1922. On that day, January 2nd, 1922, the Texas A&M Aggies were facing the top-ranked team in the country, the undefeated Center College. And as the game went on, more and more Aggie football players just kept getting injured, like one after another, after another. And so in desperation, the, co- uh, the coach looked up in the stands and he saw someone named E. King Gill, who was a basketball player who played for Texas A&M. And the coach motioned for him to come down to the sideline and asked him, we need some players. Are you willing to suit up and get in the game? And because E. King Gill cared about the glory of the school, he was willing to go out on the field. And after he came down, the most amazing thing happened. The game took a turn. And Texas A&M began to come back. And eventually they even went on to beat Center College, pulling off what is considered the greatest sports college upset of any sport ever. And so now every student stands in the tradition of saying this, I'm here. I'm ready to be of service for the glory of my school. Friends, tonight we've had a far greater glory put in front of us than that of a college. We've been talking about the glory of the holy, holy, holy God, which should convict us of our sin, which should then make us grateful for the cleansing work of Christ. But now in response, if we have seen this glory, our desire should be, we're not here to watch other people play the game. We're not here to be spectators in the stand. No, we should be suited up and ready to be of service, ready to be used by God, to be a godly influence on others for his glory. And so my encouragement to you is this. Don't waste your lives living for yourself, but spend your life right now, starting tonight. Spend your life living to be used by God to shine forth his glory to every single person that you come in contact with. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.